Ectoplasm episode 90, I think, and I have a guest for this episode, which is Tom McGrenery, who's uh, returning, having previously been on our Pale Fire episode. Tom, welcome back. Oh, it's it's lovely to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, I, I'm specifically inviting you on for this episode because we're covering something that you made a recommendation on, on Twitter. Um, do, you, do you want to introduce the series that we're talking about? Sure. Uh, we're talking about Invisible City, uh, or Cidade Invisível, uh, which is a Netflix original series, I think that's correct. Um, correct, yeah. Which is, a, well, it's an urban fantasy, and principally you could say it's about a... Well, he's he's in the police, but he's the, the environmental police, like the environmental protection agency officer called uh, Eric, who has uh, he's been recently bereaved at the beginning of the, the show, and we see him living with his daughter and his grand and her wait his grandmother that's right and uh you know he's trying to come to terms with all that and then he discovers something weird uh, while out for a jog one day which is a a pink dolphin which is dead on the beach in a place it shouldn't be and after that gets drawn into this world of the you know the traditional legends of of Brazil who are you know, it turns out, are still alive and well, well, or at least alive, in modern Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. And it's very much, it is a, it is an urban fantasy, and I like to talk about the facets of urban fantasy um, when we get to this later. One of the things I liked about this series was it's very short and very tightly plotted. There's seven episodes, and they're each about 40 minutes in length. So um, it... It doesn't have a lot of space. It doesn't have a lot of fat in the story, which is something that I really appreciate. You know, I, I kind of got the sense that this is on screen what you... It's kind of like a very short Powered by the Apocalypse game arc. It's sort of, yeah, yeah. It, 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 ha, it does one thing and it does it very well. Um, so, I mean, we've established that um, the significant thing about it, it is uh, to do with... It, it is related to Brazilian folklore in an urban fantasy setting. And I, I think I'd like to cover that in detail in a bit. But as always, first of all, I'm going to cover the synopsis and then talk about the themes and uh, specifically how you might adapt it to a role-playing game. And then finally, I'd like to close with talking about some additional media. Um, if that's cool with you? Yeah, by all, by all means. Excellent. So in the synopsis, then I'll start. I mean, the the, the hook is that uh, the series prologue starts with a hunter named Antune. Have I pronounced that correctly? Uh, Antunes. Yeah. Antunes. Thank you. Yeah. So Antunes is being escorted through the jungle, and he ignores the warnings of his guide Ciso. Now, is that is that correct? Is it Ciso or Cheetah? Because I uh, yeah, I remember uh, I remember some bits of Portuguese pronunciation, but. Uh, not an expert, so it's... Yeah, no, it is, because I believe it's short for Cicero, because this is one of the things, that's, there's a few nicknames and stuff in this series where it's the spelling is deceptive, uh, if, like me, you're watching with uh, subtitles on. Oh, fair enough, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, I mean, and, Antunes ignores Ciso's uh, advice that, you know, we, we, we don't shoot things that uh, unless we need them to consume and survive, and he chooses to shoot something for sport and for this crime he gets his comeuppance on the end of a burning spear from the um the the flame-headed Kurapira uh, and that takes place several decades in the past and then 
we've, I mean, this is still part of the hook. We fast forward to a few weeks before now, and the point of view character, Eric, loses his partner, Gabriella, in a forest fire. And um, this is, as you said, this this is the hook that we come into, where uh, she's at a party with their daughter, Luna, while he works from home. And at one point, Luna wanders off into the forest, having seen these flames. And, of course, what I liked about that bit was we, we've already seen the... Uh, the uh, manifestation of the Kurapira, so we're, I think we're supposed to logically draw that uh, draw that mm-hmm. association. Um, Eric's called in and finds that Gabriella has perished. Uh, Luna's fine, and but Gabriella isn't burned, and you know we might suspect that she's been overcome by smoke, but her eyes have curiously turned completely white, and that's kind of that's really our prologue. There's a lot of characters in this. Um, I think we've yeah. got several different. Uh, we've got several different um, groups. We've obviously got the family, um, which is you're right. It's Eric's grandmother, uh, because there's also a bit of backstory with his mother, who's no longer with us, and and it's part part of the 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 mystery is his mother and father and his origins. Um, so Eric's an environmental detective. Luna is, Luna is his daughter. Gabriella is his partner who is now deceased but we see her in flashbacks and january january i think is the um eric's grandmother um but there's also some interesting human characters um i particularly liked marcia uh eric's uh, partner in the agency um and there's also evo their boss um and i'm just looking at my notes uh, you've mentioned ciso who lives in cedar forest yeah um, and there's also Afonso, who's the you know the head of the construction company who owns Cesar Forest and wants to redevelop it. And Afonso is the grandson of Antunes. And obviously, these two characters, Afonso and Ciso, then kind of represent the two poles of uh, human interest. With one side being concerned with preservation of the forest, and the other being uh, you know the polar opposite and wanting to develop it. Um, That's right, and you've got uh, Ciso's son in between them, whose name I can never remember, but he's sort of trying to persuade his fellow Cedar Forest people to, you know, take the money and move out. Yeah, I liked him. He was, I felt he was a very sympathetic and genuine character because it's clear that he has, um, his interests are very genuine. He's not, he's not mercenary in the same way. That's right. But then that's, that's the human side. But I wanted to also talk about the entities there and now they're referred to at least in the english translation as entities is there a particular is there a particular name that's given to them uh, in the original portuguese well no it's also entities in the portuguese entidades because i was watching out for that when i rewatched it because when i was making notes i was writing spirits and then i thought well they're not really spirits and then i thought maybe immortals or no they just they just called uh, entidades which is yeah it's well i was about to say strange perhaps not strange that there's no particular word for this group because of course you know coming from folklore they're not in a way they don't really belong together except that they're figures of of legend you know yeah, like the olympian gods or, or something like that well there's a there's, i think in a lot of these cases there is a tendency to group people together and i think that's partly a consequence of our approach to urban fantasy uh which yeah. maybe we can say something on that later um just running through my list, there's uh, Inez is uh, is a witch, uh, and their leader Tutu is her muscle, 
uh, transformed peccary, which you, you pointed out that it's a peccary, not a tapir, and that there are different kinds of transformed versions. Is that correct? Well, sort of, yeah. He's, uh, he is the uh, Tutumaramba who, who comes in. He's a, he's a big kind of ogre figure, but comes in various different flavours in different uh, parts of Brazil. And I think there is one that's like a tapir spirit, but that's just in one particular region. And actually, maybe we could talk about this a bit later, is that, when, of course, whenever you start doing um, this kind of drawing on existing legends, urban fantasy, you kind of have to choose a version that you're going to have is going to be the one in your story. And I think here they've, they've chosen the peccary because he, there's a, a point in one episode where he turns into a, a wild pig. Yeah. Um, Camilla is a mermaid, just looking at that. Isaac is a saki. Is that saki, not sassi? Sassi, uh, yeah, I, I always get that wrong as well, but yeah, sassi, sassi Perez specifically, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, Abera is the Kurupira, and Manaus is the now dead transformed pink dolphin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Manaus also only appears in flashbacks. Um, so I did make a note here that there is, as you said, that there's there's no supernatural hierarchy or society to speak of, at least in the first series. It's just a collection of people who are banding together. Um, so the, the last character we should mention, which is absolutely crucial to the plot, is the is the dry body and Tunes himself, who's uh, now this, this dry body. The way I read it was, it's a creature so evil that neither heaven nor heaven nor hell or heaven nor earth will want him back. Mm. And so I, I read two versions of the eleven, two versions of the legend. One was heaven or hell, and the other was heaven or earth. And I think that sort of that in itself has an interesting cosmological implication. Is there a distinction? Well, that I'm not too sure about. Yeah, the, well, the the thing is, I think the one that I heard first, and therefore the one I always remember, is that they are so evil. You know, the grave spits them back out. So it could, that could go either way, really, couldn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And typically, the corpus echo is um, they're always inside something else. So I wasn't really aware of a version where it kind of goes into human bodies before, but that you know that's kind of a thing. But typically, they kind of inhabit trees in the forest. And they'll kind of reach out and grab people and drain their life from inside the trunk of a tree um, <laughs> in, in most tellings. So, yeah, and I guess a, a tree is between heaven and earth, much like uh, Ig- Yggdrasil, um, I suppose. So, yeah, <laughs> that, that tracks, doesn't it? You've got, they've always got to be in between. They can't be one, one or the other. Now, I often divide the plot into rising action and climax. I think the climax here is quite obvious about what it is, uh, only it is... Uh, a fairly um, I wouldn't say it's a run of the mill urban fantasy, it is obvious what is going to happen at the end with a single antagonist um, but as we said the, the rising action is Eric being drawn into the supernatural world by discovering a pink river dolphin on a beach in Rio and he takes this body away in his truck and then he discovers much later it's transformed back into a human and the human corpse uh, the, the, the corpse's eyes have gone white, exactly as Gabriella's did. And so, predictably, Eric then pursues the mystery out of a need for closure, uh, as well as his own curiosity. And obviously, this is where the supernatural world starts to bleed into the mundane and penetrate Eric's life, as well as those of, uh, as well as the lives of those around him, like his partner Marcia. Um, so, and the early part of the plot, I think, is very much. Um, in essence, followers doing damage control, uh, trying to remove all evidence of their existence, 
and this includes trying to get rid of Manau's body as well as getting rid of Eric. So we've got this case that Camilla and Tutu are tasked with Eric's assassination and they're obviously they're unsuccessful. But after the first attempt, Camilla comes around to Eric's side and tests Ines' authority with the group, which then provokes Ines redoubling her efforts, as it were. And then the second time, Tutu is actually killed. And that's, mm. that's quite a memorable, memorable scene where Tutu is rushing at Eric um, with the intention to take him down and transforming into this boar. Now, I, you, I think you've watched it just more, slightly more recently than I have. Um, at one point, Ines comes to the conclusion that it's the dry body that's the problem. It's Antun's uh, spirit that's causing the problem. And she assumes that it's gone into Eric, and Eric is causing these problems. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and not without cause either. So one thing I thought was quite good here is that the, you know, she's she's not the villain in it, but she is the the antagonist. And she's kind of, it's interesting, her motivation is not only um, sympathetic, it's also quite straightforward. You know, in a lot of urban fantasies, I think, you know, you get this thing where, you know, the, the king of the vampires is... is trying to drive down property prices over here to cause something else to happen over here in order to seize the magical artifact to the museum. Um, you get these sort of, uh, what's the word I'm after here for the, the over-elaborate devices. Um, but in this case, it's quite simple. She thinks Eric is the baddie. She's trying to kill him. That's it. And uh, everything gets complex because of that, but the actual thing she's trying to do is quite straightforward. Yeah. yeah. I think sort of... That's one of the things of contention, that Ennis is certain of this, but others mm. are less sure, and, and that kind of deepens the rifts between the supernatural characters. Um, but then we also learn that Eric has his own past with the supernatural, which might be why the powers don't fully work on him. Um, yeah, I, I think that is actually... Um, I think that's definitely what it is. At first, yeah. The first time I watched it, it was only uh, implied, but yeah, that that's definitely why it's to do with... the. Uh, his heritage, so to speak. Yeah, he, he he never knew his father. He lost his mother to mental illness. And so he set up as a sort of um, supernatural sleeper archetype. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give too much away to spoil the plot, but um, if you're a fan of the urban fantasy, I think probably you can see all these tropes well in advance. Um, but there's, there's another plot going on at the same time, which is... Um, while while this is going on, then there's the mortal side of the drama with the Cedar Forest, with um, uh, Ciso's t- tree hugging faction on one side, and Afonso and um, oh, it's uh, Joao. Uh, have I pronounced that correct? J O A O. Joao. Yeah. Joao. Thank you. Yeah. When there's, when the there's a, side, a wiggly he... thing over the top, it's an imaginary N that you have to kind of. Just oh, that's good to know. Difficult, but that—that's—that's that's Ciso's son, who that's was this Ciso's sort of con- conflicted character, um, and uh, and and you know, that, so there's that conflict going on, and there's a there's this code for a sort of counter eco agenda. Uh, but as I said, I think these characters are slightly more nuanced than that. Um, and then the other side plot I think is worth mentioning, though, and, and I think it's worth mentioning because it does, again, fit in with the urban fantasy tropes, is um, Marcia. And, and she is... I, th- I think there is no other character really like her because uh, she is a purely human, non-supernatural character 
who nevertheless starts starts doing her own thing, digging into Inez' clan, and she follows, she pursues Eric to find out what's going on. So she makes her way into the magical world, and and there's there's even a confrontation between herself and Marcia, um, and so she's in a lot of ways she she made me think of the the mortal playbook in Monster Hearts, uh, this sort of character who is going down the the rabbit hole. Um, but she is, um, what's nice is that she's a completely mortal character who nonetheless has a lot of agency and uh, is, is uh, you know, I, I think as a viewer, one of the most sympathetic characters that sort of the most interesting ones for purely for the investigation. So um, I would have liked to see more than that. I, I hope we see more of her in the second season because it's been, it's been renewed. Yeah, that's um, right. I think there's a, a sort of alternate universe where Marcia is the main character. You know, I could see you making this show, but it being Marcia, look, you know, chasing after her partner who's gone weird, and trying to figure out what's up. You know, that I mean, that would be an interesting take on the um, uh, take on the second season. It's, it, it is the first season, just from oh, that would be good. Different, yeah. different perspective. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so to, to to wrap this up at the climax, um, you know, as you might expect. The supernatural hunt for the dry body and the, the mundane battle for the forest come to a head concurrently. Um, although mostly the action is slanted towards the supernatural stuff. Um, and there are a lot of great th- great uh, examples of themes like, you know, sacrifice, revenge, settling old scores. Um, and characters taking on the mantle of supernatural power even though they don't want to. Now, that, that's something I think I'd like to come to later as well because... Uh, it that really speaks to the nature of what this collection of characters are. Um, it does it does end on a cliffhanger, kind of, but I'm going to forgive that, particularly because we're going to get another series. Um, <laughs> but then I, I'm I'm a lot more um, I'm a lot more tolerant of cliffhangers these days. Uh, I think that some of the there are, and there are some superb superb films that end on cliffhangers and yeah I, I had this discussion with my wife actually she was she was not happy with the cliffhanger and i said but doesn't the wrestler with mickey Rourke end like this and i don't think she liked that either but yeah i thought it was uh, <laughs> I, yeah i thought it was okay so you know yeah that's good um so i i think that covers the synopsis enough to give a taste of why it's worth watching um, so I'd like now to talk about the themes in the RPGs and the first thing, the, the obvious thing is actually to go into the talk about the Brazilian myth so what I wanted to do Tom is, is actually ask you a few questions and you know, talk around the subject um, now the first question I've got is is it correct that these characters in the series are humans who are inhabited by forest spirits or forest entities uh, and by that I mean if they were to perish would or could somebody else take the mantle of that character? Right, see I think this is a very interesting question because when I, when I first saw this in the notes I thought well obviously not and then I, I, watched, the, you know, I watched the episodes again as homework and I started to think actually I think with the text that we have it's possible except that for example, when we see uh, Yara, sorry, Camilla is the the modern day cover name for for Yara, who is a a kind of it's from a tupi, I think tupi, or, uh, word meaning the queen of the waters. So she is actually a particular mermaid, 
Um, when we see her in flashback in like the 1800s or earlier, she's still the same actress. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean anything. Her face could change to be the same, whatever, when it's taken over. But no, I think it is the same people who have been living all this time. And another reason I think that is because there are so many uh, Brazilian legends that are uh, kind of the origin stories are marked as being in a specific time. So like we, we get to see, I think we see a flashback for pretty much every kind of an origin story for every character at yes, some point, so. um, including Eric, you know, um, but uh, and Marcia, in fact, in a way. Uh, but the one you get to see for Isaac who is uh, Sassy. And uh, so the thing about Sassy Perez, is he's a kind of trickster figure, uh, much like the leprechauns of Ireland. He's kind of said to be inside whirlwinds when they blow across the farmyard. Uh, he'll steal and he'll steal things from around your farm. Uh, but if you grab his hat, you can make him do stuff. And he only has one leg, and we get to see him in a sort of end of Mad Max type. Uh, you have to escape, you know, saw your leg off to escape a situation. Spoilers for Mad Max, by the way. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and that is, and the reason I bring that up is because that you see him being flogged at a Pelerino, that big uh, the kind of stake yep. that's outside the farm. Uh, in cities, that would be, a, I think, normally a, a stone pillar. But out in the country, you had to make do with flogging your slaves uh, against a wooden post. You know, times were hard. Um, and that's that's rooting in a very specific historical time. And you, there are other guys like uh, the Grazing Boy, uh, who is this sort of figure a bit like, I guess, a bit like the Black Dog in East Anglia. He's mm-hmm. just this kid who's a bit skeletal who appears riding a white horse and sometimes guides people to safety when they're lost in the, in the Kaitinga. And his origin story is horrific, by the way. Trigger warnings for insects, everyone. He was killed by being thrown onto an ant nest when he was just like... And he's like seven or eight years old. Um, and But because these are all in this quite specific historical milieu, it's not like it's an immortal figure. With the possible exception of Inez, who is the Kuka, who comes from, you know, Iberia, I think they kind of have to be the same person. But there is a line... Um, I, I kind of halfway, two thirds of the way into the series, where someone is at the bar that Inez runs, and someone says to either Eric or Marcia, "You could become one of us." So there is this suggestion that I think, although the the characters are not immortally recurring, their numbers can be added to. Right, the Kurupira has been around for centuries and centuries before Europeans ever arrived. Um, but the Kuka has, has definitely not, because we know she's from Portugal, because she exists in Portugal. Um, so therefore, I think I think the idea is that they can be traumatic events, because they're all traumatic events, right? It's the Kuka uh, miscarries her baby in the forest, Yara is yeah. drowned. These it, Basically, things that would create a ghost create these traumatic, immortal spirit entities, I think. That's, Doesn't the... Uh... Isn't the Kuka specifically a ghost rather than a witch? Is that correct? Uh, well, she's, a, she's a very generic... Well, she's a kind of a frighten your children to sleep figure. So mm. actually, if you remember, there's a scene where she knows the security guard's name when she breaks into a hospital and she sings him a oh, song. Yes. That song, I didn't notice it the first time, but when I paid attention, that's the lullaby that Brazilian mothers sing to their kids about go to sleep or the Kuka will come and eat you. <laughs> um, so, and that's that's her deal. So she's sort of um, she's that's her. She's like a Baba Yaga kind of figure, I guess. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. The the reason that I the reason I was sort of asked about this sort of inhabiting that it was based on a couple of things that happen and one is the the cuckoo she uh, she manifests it seems when a um, a butterfly lands on her face so I was wondering if that is the representation of something entering her and then uh, we have Sassy who um, having been forced to amputate his own leg. Um, I was wondering if he then became a, a suitable vessel. Well, that's, that's true, because, yeah, he gets whipped up by that whirlwind, doesn't he, at the end of the scene? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, I, it, I, yeah. It's almost I like... there's an argument for it, yeah. After that, he's hopping through, uh, and, and he there, there, there's a scene where he's, having just had to mutilate himself, he looks up at the sky and sort of that's... Yeah. A, with a very joyful expression on his face, which suggests that you know there something in him has transformed, and then there's yeah. the the suggestion that um, uh, the the Kurapira, the 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 guy, um, uh, his uh, Ibere, I think is is that guy. He, he he's being Ibere, asked yeah. to become the Ibere is being asked to become the Kurapira again. Uh, so, but I I think. Um, I think that's interesting because it does, the, depending on which way you go, it does have implications of um, you know whether or not, for example, we'll, we'll see certain characters again because of the the events that have happened. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you. Um, you, you mentioned the time period. What time period are we actually talking about um, when these legends were active? Ah, uh, that's that's really difficult as well. So. Um, I mean, most, I would say most of the ones that we see, um, it's really varied. So you, you have indigenous uh, legends, which would include uh, things like the uh, Kurupir, as he is in, in Tupi, which means, uh, hang on, it's the boy who has uh, pustules on his skin. So that's why at the very end where you see he's kind of all marked and mottled, that's it's one of his uh, things. So he is... So he's been around since before um, colonization, which is about the 1500s. Um, and then I guess we could say the same for uh, probably Kuka and Yara, because mermaids and, and uh, Kuka in Europe have been around that long. And then some of them are of more recent vintage. So in the basically in the era of slavery, you're looking at 1700s probably, where these legends come about of um, basically any, any legends where the characters are black, uh, that's got to be more recent than the slave trade. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a real variation, but they all sort of seem to... And that's one reason there's no kind of obvious hierarchy, I think, in the supernatural characters, because they don't... They're not all from the same mythology in a way. They're in this sort of melting pot. The exception, I think, being Kuka, simply because everyone's scared of her. But that, I don't think, is... Uh, that's not because of, like... A, you know, Zeus is the king of the gods kind of hierarchy. It's just a, a function of, I think, how, you know, like a, a big ogre, who, by the way, a tutu is often associated with uh, the kuka. His other form is a big shadow monster, which in one of the bits where they're talking to Eric about how he couldn't sleep when he was a kid, she mentions mm. him seeing a shadow. And I think the implication is that that's actually tutu there to frighten him as like a herald of Inez showing up to really mess with him. Oh, uh, but right. uh, yeah, but the um so yeah, there is a little bit of interaction like that, but generally speaking for, I don't think you get Sassy and Kurupira for example in the same story normally. Oh, that's interesting. That that's really interesting. Right. So, I've got one final question is um 
It's really around the hits and the misses of representation in the series. Is there anything, first of all, that uh, you felt wasn't quite the way you you would have done it or, or the way you expected? Oh, that's interesting. I, the, the one that kept bothering me a bit was uh, Kurupira's flaming head. Because uh, uh-huh. I've, I've heard him described as flame-haired, but normally in the sense of having red hair. Um, so that was... I think that was, but you could sort of see for narrative reasons why that was done. But and also, I think that's a fake out for Brazilian viewers because for most of this, I think if you're from Brazil, there are no surprises. Um, in some, or well, there are fewer, right? Like pink dolphin dead on the beach, like you know where that's going. Whereas for I don't know about for for you, uh, Ralph, but certainly for me, I was spending a lot of time going, I don't know what that is, or I was guessing at a couple that I knew and I was wrong. And I think the flames are to throw people off and make them think of. Um, is it a boy tata, the, the flaming serpent of the forest? Um, so I think they've done a, a couple of those slightly unsatisfying, let's squish some legends together to make it into right. one figure things. But yeah. overall, no, I felt it was, um, I felt like they were really compelling. And I, I've always felt one of the, the key things is those tragic backstories. And they were done very effectively, I thought. Yeah, was, uh, I agree. I enjoyed all of them um beautifully directed as well i felt following on from the brazilian myth uh, discussion what i wanted to talk about was explore um the urban fantasy template and i've got a couple of headings i had in in mind um the first one was though the sort of the nature of urban and as far as i'm concerned I'm, i think in invisible city it's not just that it's urban but it's also urban and adjacent to nature so there's there's a very strong connection with um with, with the because there's a strong connection with the folklore there's there's a a connection with nature as it were um now i don't know if that's a consequence of um the geopolitical situation around rio and in brazil compared to say the more established urban centers of of, of well, I guess they're not more established because if we're talking about somewhere like New York, um, then yeah. it's yeah, it's <laughs> it is no different. But I think there is a different feel about it. Um, so what actually makes it urban? I was arguing that mm-hmm. it maybe it implies greater division between the supernatural and mundane compared to the rural areas. That's the first thing. Yeah, there's something to that because I think there's there's a fair amount in the background of when you know Cecil was talking about the the good old days when the fishing was good and in cedar forest and so on. There is this implication that more people knew about the uh, Kurupira and, and looking after the forest, and and that's what's changed now. That's one of the reasons that um, the the catch is drying up and so on. Um, so I think there's there's a bit of that, but for me, I think it's less well. I was about to say, I don't know why it's urban, because it's in a city, is why it's urban. And it's less, I think, about the the supernatural having moved into the city, but more like they stayed where they were and the city grew around them. There's a, there's a line early on where it just says the city got bigger and the forest got smaller. I think it's sort of... There's a bit about this that feels to me like, especially for the more obviously wildernessy ones, like Kurupira and, and maybe Yara, who, you know, is now swimming around Botafogo Bay, which, you know, is a lot smaller than it used to be thanks to land reclamation, um, that they're kind of, they're still in the same place and kind of resentful about the fact that it's got buildings in it now. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't think it's as much, I think it's more about the development of the city than it is about 
the urban-rural split. Does that make sense? It, do, it does make sense. And I think that's, that's an interesting... Um, interesting you put it that way around because uh, a lot of our urban fantasy, it does often feature itinerant characters who will be... They are the outsider, you know, the, the, the lone vampire or whatever, and they come to a place and they find their clan, and which is not what we've got here. What we've got here is an, is an infection of the city imposed upon the land, which is not how, not not how I think um, you know Camarilla era vampires will think of think of them. They, they think of themselves as a global franchise, which uh, is not the same thing. Um, have you read uh, Have you read the Grant Morrison's The Invisibles? I read book one of it a long time ago, but not the whole thing. Yeah, there's a really fantastic line in early on where it um, it's where um, uh, Jack Frost is being initiated by Tom of Bedlam, and Tom says uh, it, there's a great great scene where he basically um, swaps Jack Frost's eyes for the eyes of a pigeon. Uh, so that the Jack Frost can can look around the city, um, flying as the pigeon, and uh, and he says, "No one knows how the disease got in, but cities are a disease." And at one point, we were all living in harmony with the land, and then, and then suddenly the city sprung up, and they caused all of the harm and the hurt and, and lack of balance in human life, and uh, and I think that's very much the, the the sense that I've got here, and some but something that. We don't often view the city as the enemy um, in the way that maybe uh, that th- that is kind of implied here. Maybe em- enemy is the wrong way, wrong word, but it is an invader. Yeah, yeah, because I don't think the well, I'm not going to say they're totally happy, but it doesn't seem like they're anti-city specifically. But there is that line from Sassiel when he talks to Luna at one point, saying, "Not everyone can see things as they really are." And it is true. There's this idea of, um, I don't think I don't think anyone gets given second sight or anything at any point. You know, it's not like Neverwhere, mm. where you kind of suddenly see London below. But I feel like there are those transitional moments when um, they go to, you know, the first time Eric goes to Inez's bar and hears uh, Yara uh, Camilla singing. And I want to talk a bit about the song that she sings, by the way, maybe later on, because awesome. uh, that's a that's that's a historical thing that's that's very relevant to it being in rio and not or in brazil and not somewhere else um and i think marcia gets that as well when she goes to the same place so i think there is something about stepping into the enchanted world um especially at night so this i think it has in common with you know fairy tales of you know going into the barrow when the elves are are you know awakened at a certain time of year at night time because I think actually that one of the really effective things in this is this idea of um, places being different at night or being different under different circumstances. So I think we see humans go into that bar kind of three key times, right? First time Eric goes and gets sort of all woozy after and sort of seduced by the mermaid when she tries to drown him and it doesn't take. Um, and then Marcia going and encountering Inez. And there's one time, I forget who it is, and they go there in the daytime and it just seems empty and kind of ordinary. Yeah. You know, and um, that so that I think is that's sort of one of the key things I think in urban fantasy is the bleed for the reader or the player as well. Like one of the fun things about playing, you know, Apocalypse World set in a an abandoned mall is that you walk around real malls later, kind of 
picturing what it would be like to have to live in the the back of Zara or you know or with Vampire Masquerade you start thinking oh yeah I'd you know yeah my, my Toreador guy would have his haven up there that would be that'd be awesome and and that's that's what I think is going on definitely um in in Invisible City hence the name right this idea that these places all take on a different complexion once you know once you know the secret and once you can see what's really there yeah I had uh you know I I have um this game that I'm gradually trying to to bring to life and one of the one of the parts is the idea about the null which is the space that's in between uh that no one has observed yet and so it's um it's basically a uh a, a, a potential void waiting to be waiting to be shaped by the observer um now this is not quite the same thing because obviously that there's there's the suggestion that there are places this is places that are already filled but they they are there to be discovered but i i i like that point about the bar because you're absolutely right and i hadn't quite made that connection before that it is a different place during the daytime uh and uh it, yeah. it, it doesn't have the same atmosphere which is it's very much like a bar though you, you like go, a real bar. You yeah. to, Have you ever been in a nightclub when they turn the lights on? It's not. Yeah, you don't want to be there. Yeah, it's not a lot of magic there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's um. It's uh. It's like Club Silencio, I guess, in um. Uh, uh, Drive. Right? Drive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, one of the other things I noticed about sort of urban fantasy, and I don't know how how true it is in this example, is that a lot of the time the the, you know. Urban fantasy is a concentration of different bodies and cultures living on one on top of the other, and so what you do experience, I think, is a lot of um, different cultures in the course of play, and diversity of presentation and gender and so on. That's probably why um, you know the, the the sort of both the 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 fringe um, the, the fringe groups and the queer content works so well in that scenario, I think, better than any other. Um, we got a bit of that in, in this one, but um, it does seem to me that, um, based on your comments as well, that that this city, this whole situation has grown up a lot more organically than the, the way we would normally artificially have a city as a melting pot of lots of people who've come to it and then form part of it. Um, I I quite like that there is a, there's a route back to the original people who formed the city here, which isn't always visible in a lot of urban fantasy, where they just say, "Oh yeah, let's just let's just throw some werewolves in here and throw some vampires in here yeah, and, yeah. and have a mage yeah. down the street," and uh, we, which is um, so I did feel that this had a uh, a very um, organic and believable credible quality to it that that urban fantasy doesn't often have um yeah i think it's telling that one of the key sites is that uh the 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 favela in uh in in lapa well actually there's there's a couple of things that specifically um you know maybe you were even if you don't know know them you you can see them on screen uh, one of the things is that specifically is lapa district in in rio where where the supernatural beings are kind of hanging out so in some cases that's yeah in the, the homeless the shanty town right which is you know where people wash up when they kind of don't really have anywhere else to go um it's also the site of the famous uh, the aqueduct with the tram that goes over the top that you'll you recognize from postcards and mm -hmm. stuff and and lapa district 
is famously it works uh, to where your malandros hang around uh-huh. and jazz yeah. musicians and stuff. So this it's drawing on a very that's where it's drawing on a very twentieth century um, mythology. So it it's sort of a bit like I guess it's a bit like Soho in London. So that's if you mention queer culture and music and outsiders, that that's why it's set there as well it's kind of drawing on those associations i think and um oh ooh, this is just reminding me i did want to bang on about that song which recurs a few times actually yeah go for it because that right so i was listening to that song and again it's one of those ones where i i, I did have to google it because i couldn't remember what it was but i knew i'd i knew it rang a bell and it is a sort of you almost won't recognize it if you hear the original version but it is um a song from an album called uh, Secos y Moliados in 1973. Uh, sorry, the band is called that. And this was part of the the tropicalist music scene, which was a kind of jazz fusion, um, kind of sun-soaked cocktail drinking kind of sound. But it was crucially, it was also anti-military hunter in its politics by being so relaxed and weird and, and, and so on. And so although if you can listen to the lyrics, she's singing about you know i've broken treaties and uh, you know talking about mixed blood and so on she's really singing about the history of uh, i mean specifically i say of rio but also brazil as a whole and so yeah that idea of displaced people and being trying to find ways to live where they can be free but without kind of breaking the surface and attracting too much attention and that of course is what the all the supernatural entities are, are trying to do um, and I'm, one thing I'm not clear, what, I, I don't know, what, what do you think about this? Is it they're trying to stay undercover from people in general? Or is it, I don't think it could be from the Corpus Seco, because he was imprisoned until the beginning of the series, right? They're not hiding from him, except like once it starts. But no, they do seem to be kind of in hiding, right? If, they, if, if they're in hiding, and, and I think they may be... Um, yeah, you're quite right. It's it's from people in general. The question is, why do they feel the need to do that? Because um, that we've got no evidence in the narrative yet of um, a, a mortal agency that's hunting them down. Uh, maybe that is coming, um, but maybe they hide for maybe they hide for other reasons. Um, and. This also goes to the point uh, that that you made earlier about um, not everyone can see the uh, not everyone can see um, everything that's there. There is a uh, one, one of the things I felt this was closest to in terms of urban fantasy was changeling, the lost. Not changing the yeah. loss, changing the dreaming. Kept, I the, kept thinking about changing the dreaming. I kept thinking about it while I was watching. Yeah, yeah, and and the, the you mentioned, but but you mentioned the bar. And I don't know if you ever got the original promo uh, stuff for Changeling, the, the very first stuff. That there's a, there's a, um, uh, there's a, it was like oh, a three-sheet thing where you have... Yes. So th- there's a painting of Bar with a load of patrons, and you turn the page, and it's the same painting, and they're starting to transform. And you turn the page again, and they're transformed into totally different people. And that gave me such a strong sense of... of yeah, you know, th- this is actually manages to get away from vampire and werewolf, which are dark and gritty, and then get into the spaces where these are secrets that some people can see and other people can't, and they're special. Yeah. And and that was the thing. Now, and of course, in in Changeling, the threat there is to their existence is there's banality, 
which is you know just being forgotten. So that that raises the question: Why? What exactly are they threatened by that they would want to keep themselves a secret? Um, and I'm not sure, um, but I guess that it, it's a difficult one to to work out exactly what Inez' motives are for killing Eric, for example. Because initially I thought, oh, they they want to keep themselves hidden, um, but why? There's no motive there. There's no obvious threat apart from the obvious mortal end of we want to bulldoze Caesar, Cedar Forest and uh, and turn it into a housing development or whatever and the the obvious plot line there yeah I mean I wonder if there's some kind of hidden uh, thing to do with, with well there's his mother and father backstory maybe that's in series 2 I don't know yeah that's it's a good question they don't seem to have well, well there's there's no explanation on screen for why they behave the way they do I think if you were using banality like in changing the dreaming that would work pretty well yeah just you could just apply it straight away although i've never been that fond of it it seems like a bit of an easy thing and i mean worry i mean the thing you can get away with in a tv show or a novel or something is it might just be in their nature to do that yeah but in a game that would be quite unsatisfying so uh i don't i don't know yeah we um well, I, I guess it would be a very specific kind of game that where where the protagonist's role was to kill anyone who'd ever seen you, or something like that. That's um, oh yeah. Well, great. I mean, I think do I mean you got to bear in mind Inez does believe that Eric is inhabited by the Corpus Echo, who's hunting them down for revenge. Yeah. Okay. Um, so so, the, so there is yeah. yeah. It's not just actually that's true because she lets Marcia kind of go. Yeah. Doesn't she? Or yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm wondering if we've got things r- the right way round now. I mean, uh, yes, you're quite right that the their main motivation for attacking Eric is because they think that he is is possessed by dry body. Yeah. That's, okay. But I. I uh, but it was just you mentioning the bar, and then I thought oh, that took me straight back to that uh, changeling painting, and I, I felt that that is yeah, very much the vibe. I think that's on the. Yeah, it's on the GM screen for changeling as well. That painting, I think. Yeah. The, the two. Yeah. That's a good one. And uh, yeah, Changeling is a good. I think if you were, wait, I'm accidentally segueing into ahead of a segment now. But yeah, I think Changeling the Dreaming. If you sort of want to think about it in a certain schema of how it works, because uh, it also had that thing of enchanted mortals who could see um, people's fairy um, appearances if they'd you know eaten a magic cake or something recently, um, you know, and the rest of the time they just looked like they were playing with sticks or or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I've got a couple of other things for the urban fantasy, but then I then I, I do have a whole... Uh, th- there is a section I think we should talk about changeling in a bit. Um, one, of, one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, how people are initiated, and, and you know, this, in this case, it's a kind of birthright. Um, you know, they've... Eric has inherited this membership to the secret society, um, and... That's one. That that's a fairly standard trope where you say, "Well, my um, you, know, you, you are either your parents were members of the society, or you have certain blood," uh, and and that's how a lot of it works. But the other example, which I kind of prefer, is the um, where the character just accidentally stumbles into the other world and then has to make their way. Uh, that's very much yep. that that that's the neverwhere. Yeah. Um, uh, template, which um, that's never where, yeah, that's that's the best one. I think you're right. It's uh, I'm I've never been that keen on the sort of Lovecraftian. Oh, it's all in your blood. 
thing. And yeah, I, I think I think a stumbling into or a decision, a seeking out, I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, like, which I, I think is the sort of the Marcia plot in a way. Yes. And and the fact that there are, um, we we see numerous uh, kind of folk magic practitioners. I I'm not sure if I don't think it's Candomble. It's either well, could be Candomble or Umbanda. I, I'm not an expert on the Afro-Brazilian religions, but these sort of um, let's call them folk uh, shamans, kind of who have the ability to keep the supernatural world out. And of course, but of course, that means they're aware in some way of it. And presumably, you could reverse that to, you know enact ways to put yourself into the supernatural world as well the opposite of the closed body if you will um i i think that's that's your sort of player character motivation isn't it? i think that so the thing that's the more interesting way than the the born into it which i was a little bit disappointed by to be honest with you mm-hmm. if there's a a thing i was slightly a bit ah uh, that's a bit tropey um it was it was that yeah yeah i mean one of the things one of the notes that i wrote uh, was um you know which one is better I think we just answered that question in my in terms of in terms of sort of an engaging plot that that where, where you reward curiosity. I certainly think that it is it's one of the reasons I think that um, you know people just stumbling onto the unknown is that wherever you have some kind of birthright, it um, you are singling out a character as special and uh, yeah. which which. Um, it, it always grates, and it sort of you, you can end up with uh, Mary Sue's and uh, and, and uh, otherwise characters who are told that they should be special and end up being anything but. Um, but the one of the things I was thinking of is is one of those more likely to result in hierarchies than the other. So um, related to yeah. so related to this consideration, I was thinking about societies and vampire society and and um uh fairy society where a lot of the examples that we have both in vampire and uh, you know world of darkness and in things like uh lost girl and um i guess the the vampire diaries and and um even things like um to a lesser extent like teen wolf but that sort of thing there's um there's a secret society and there's a pecking order inside and it's all related to whose blood you have running through your veins. Yeah. And people can even inherit specialness by, you know, mid-season they get bitten by a werewolf, so now they're a vampire <laughs> werewolf, and therefore innately more special than the person next to them who's <laughs> just a werewolf uh, or something like that. So I, I, I was thinking, this is what I'm arguing, is that um, you have a, an urban fantasy setup where people inherit and have a birthright to supernatural stuff. That is is a, a supernatural pecking order, the inevitable result of that. I suspect it might be, and I, I don't think that's always a bad thing, because I think Goodfellas is a good movie. Yeah, but... but <laughs> And and that literally, you know, you know, that's a, a good movie that deals with issues of, you know, inheritance and, you know, is it what's Robert De Niro's character? Jimmy can never be a made man because he's not Italian. Um, but but that's a very specific kind of story, and and it's always going to be about that hierarchy, isn't it? In the end, yeah. Whether it you're positioning yourself in opposition to it, saying this sucks, we're leaving, um, or if you're, you know, just playing the the mafia game, but. Yeah, I think if you want to have 
a sort of exploration of and i think what what you lose then is the urban part of the urban fantasy it's still fun but you're not really you don't get to do things like going around exploring the strange landscape or the you know the setting as it exists in in the way that you might want to um because every, you're always doing missions or whatever yeah i i, I totally agree i mean they i'm Going back to uh, Invisible City, of course, this, this structure is completely flat. You've got so so few characters, there is no hierarchy. Uh, they all have their role to play and their relationship with each other. So, uh, one one yeah. of the things uh, years ago, um, I'm, I I have a sort of a thing I rant about occasionally, which is how Vampire First Edition is superior to Second Edition, and I, I I talked to friends about this years ago, and one of the friends was. Saying, well, what you're what you're really saying is that Vampire First Edition is about being an outsider, and Vampire Second Edition is about being an insider, and um, mm. I will always go to that sort of rough and ready, near dark. Um, you're you're basically on your own, and you band together out of desperation type of vampire scenario compared to you're now members of this massive supernatural club of people, and you're actually not as special as a consequence yeah yeah exactly i would like um i was recently played the second one of those um vampire the masquerade uh, visual novel games the one where you're on a sombra and and it had like the first one was reasonably okay pacing was a bit off but because you were this sort of you were deliberately thrown outside of the clan structure or whatever in this one you're sort of automatically in some i think you're You've been made as quote unquote a joke, the La Sombra primogen of New York, and you're going around making allies. And I was just like, this is this is not horrific at all. Where's this? so? Um, yeah, it's, the, it's the, you're right. It's the same deal. And all the good times I've had playing Vampire the Masquerade have always been these outsider characters. Now I never played first edition, so I remember GMing one where it was set in London and the characters were kind of cast out onto the streets. Blood hunts, very useful plot devices, mm. um, and and that was amazing because of people who had been insiders now being forced to you know like watching actually i guess it's the plot of the queen and i isn't it <laughs> watching the, the world to do having to having to put 50p in the gas meter but in this case um having to travel across across the city and not get not get caught and having to you know actually figure out how to fuel a car to drive away that kind of thing and but you know with superpowers and, and yeah it's um for me it's more compelling but i i get the appeal of the hierarchy thing uh, it is uh, the the thing that uh, the issue with it is that it is what it became partly I think because of Vampire LARP because how else are you going to play it? Um, yeah, I, I know I know some people who, who set up some uh, uh, interesting real world LARPing where they they would be um, the fantasy creatures but they'd meet in real world locations and set up uh, sessions where there'd just be a few people and everyone else would be not in the game and mm. um, that seems to be much more effective and in keeping with it because you keep the numbers small if you if you read the original vampire you're only supposed to have one vampire per 100,000 mortals and you yeah, that was always a bit of a problem yeah, the sheer number of you vampires try, in any given city yeah. well you try and work work that out and and you work out and you have a game in oxford and you realize you know we've got 30 players here how does that work and uh, and and the other thing the consequences vampire larp 
you could only ever have the insider game. You could, so you have a hierarchical yeah. meeting, which is boring because it ends up being like a corporate meeting, and most of us do that in the day job. And you know, you, you don't yeah. want to do that to do that for for um, you know, relaxation as well. Uh, uh, I suppose parche our complaints about hierarchies is. Uh, the fact that the mortals, being in the Environmental Protection Agency, have a hierarchy and have stuff to do. And it's quite good that the motivation, the initial motivation for the whole thing kicking off is the fact that Eric is meant to investigate dead dolphins on beaches, right? That's what sets this whole thing off. And um, I think it's an effective... It kind of gives you this sort of straightforward um, you know, mission job to do that cuts straight across everything else that's happening. Um, and it reminds me of uh, a quite, well, I think it's a quite effective way of doing like a, a horror scenario. Uh, there's an old Call of Cthulhu adventure set on a submarine, which is, you know, basically what the horror part is. You're kind of floating around in your submarine and you see scary things under the water. But what your characters are doing is they're supposed to be running some tests and collecting some samples. They've got like a list of things they're supposed to be getting on with. And in the same way, like uh, Eric and Marcia, they have, they're meant to be finding out why a, a dolphin, an endangered, mind you, pink river dolphin <laughs> from up in the Amazon, near Manaus, hence the name, yeah. is, is down here in the sea. And that's, uh, I think that's very effective. I think that works particularly well for role-playing games as well. Having a mission that is in the same place as the weird stuff or the, you know, the, the urban fantasy elements. But for example, you're, uh, you know, or like in film noir, the, most, people always think of detectives, but actually a lot of the characters are like insurance adjusters or door-to-door salesmen you know they're getting involved in this stuff because they're trying to sell rugs not because they want to get involved with a some kind of murder mystery yeah when, when i ran department v uh in um in the sort of late 90s it was this was basically um the sweeney hunting down vampires and werewolves but i did actually change the mythology a lot but it, it, one of the thing, reasons i think it worked very well was because they all had uh, they had a specific mission and it was it was not to investigate strange things and be part of a magical landscape but it was instead to solve particular crimes and it just happened that right. then that that's where it was adjacent and i've i think that is a very reliable formula but one of the other things it does well is of course it it it, uh, it gives characters um a certain edge of uh, credibility and and scope to sort of you know take charge and and have a certain amount of agency just in the way that marcia yeah. does uh, i think that's that's very important for your, your sense of you know who your character is uh, because if if you said oh my your your character is basically defined by being a monster then you've got the question about well, what do I do all day, and and that's yeah, and, yeah. and that's a comment I'm going to come to in a bit when we talk about the media bit. Are you okay? Shall we move on to talking about? Yeah, media? let's go and do that because I think that's yeah, it's yeah, be a natural. So, step, yeah. so number one, so what we usually do in this bit is is um, I like to talk about other things that are worth talking about. Now you've already mentioned changing the dreaming, um, which I, I think is um, I agree with you about banality. Uh, in that it was, I always found it was very difficult to actually make that any kind of threat. It's kind of, you're okay, so you're fading into nothing. How do you actually deal with that? Uh, yeah. It's quite quite a challenge. Um, now I've got a list of other urban fantasy uh, games. One of them is Nephilim. 
I don't know if you've ever played that or, or you're familiar with oh, it. I haven't. I remember always reading reading reviews of its weird supplements in Arcane magazine, but I never <laughs> I never got a chance to play it myself. I've um I've I've got a complete set of the English language printing, and that was all the way back into the first edition. Now they're they're actually on the fourth edition in the French language, uh, and I think it's entirely different. It's a different system, and it's also looks like it's got a very different tone i remember uh, flicking through a copy when i was in x and um but it's it's i was thinking very much about um nephilim into in in this context because a lot of it is about eternal spirits inhabiting physical bodies and then changing them slowly it's got this thing that they use called a a chinese portrait that that talks about the kind of mythological entity but then it's got as transformations that the creatures go through they they have a change in their their hands their eyes their smell um and and a couple of other things their voice yeah their their voice changes and gradually these monsters manifest um but the problem is with nephilim there's no support in what you would do day to day because it's got it's got these wonderful bits in it that um that say here are the points in your past existence uh, because you're a spirit who's inherited several bodies here are all the different parts in history where you have manifested in another person doesn't actually say how you translate that to to playing a game in the here and now which is how it should be done so i think that's the issue yeah so i yeah as you say it's sort of the changelings problem as well just defining you in terms of the supernatural part and not really helping you out with what you do data. Monster Heart solves that by, you know, you're a teenager, you go to school, that's what you do. Um, I was about to say, what, what, what does he do in Highlander, which is what Nephilim sounds a little bit <laughs> like a weird version of. It, he's an art dealer, isn't he? He's yeah. he an art dealer. I've actually been watching some of the old Highlander series on, on Amazon Prime. It's some it's... That is a show that, oh, it has some very good episodes, but most of them aren't, yeah. I would say. But... Celebrity spotting in that show. Yes. Great fun. Joan Jett, for example. Really? Uh, I've not spotted that. That's, it is quite, um, it's quite interesting. And what are the consequences? What, what, what are the, what's the likelihood that you'd have two immortal Highlanders from the same clan, Scottish clan? I, I, just think that's, uh, I, I think that's very, very lucky, isn't it? That's, um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I'm generally, um, I think we've hit on the, the, the issue with Nephilim and everything else is that if, Everything that's special about your urban fantasy character is the fantasy part um, and the supernatural part, then not actually that interesting of a character. I don't know. Do you think that Urban Shadows suffers from that or do, or do you think that it gets away with it? Oh, urban Shadows. I feel like it gets away with it because there's so much else going on. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I've not played enough of it to make a, a solid judgment, though. I think I wouldn't want to. I mean, it, it does it does drive things nicely with the um, uh, with, with with the various uh, factions and the necessary connections to the different factions you have to make in order to advance your character. I thought that was quite a skillful bit of design. Um, although there is so much going on in that system that I don't have that much patience for it. Unfortunately, mm. maybe that's uh, that's on me. Um, I wanted to ask you about one very specific role-playing game, though, which is Elephant and McCall Banner, uh, which oh, yeah. which is what you referenced when, when you first tweeted about uh, Invisible City, right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, mandatory promo section comes in here. So, uh, dear listener, if, if you 
haven't already seen me tweeting insufferably about it, I translate and publish um, in English the books from a Brazilian game called The Elephant and Macaw Banner, uh, which is in turn based on a series of, um, I suppose they're novellas, aren't they? Um, about a couple of adventurers in 16th century Brazil knocking around and having, yeah, uh, the author Chris Caston Smith likes it when people call it the Brazilian Witcher. You know, they, they rock up into town, it's got a problem with a monster, and they, you know, they figure it out and, and make it go away and or kill it. And that's how how Invisible City was in, introduced to me, was seeing it on the Facebook group for uh, the Portuguese version. Everyone was very excited, though, going, oh, it's like a modern-day Elephant and Macaw banner. And this is where my scepticism kicked in. And I thought, what? <laughs> um, because, of course, that's not the structure. But it, it's not about Erica Marcia riding into town and encountering a creature. But what it is and what I think um, makes the Elephant and Macaw banner... Um, obviously, I'm going to recommend the role-playing game, but I think particularly the stories as well, is that the creatures are the plot, right? So, um, for example, to give away slightly uh, one of the stories, there's uh, they go to... I forget which town it is, um, the main characters, and they there's basically flaming skulls at night harassing and terrifying people on the road and they have to find out what's going on with that and of course this is based on a real brazilian legend of the the comacang or the wait what's it called in portuguese comacanga um and and the plot is it's a bit like a penangalan you know it's someone in the town whose whose head is flying off at night and doing yeah. all kinds of wickedness mm -hmm. classic um but and they have to work out who it is and, and stop him and all that kind of stuff and I think, and that's what um, Sidajin Visuvel does so well, is it's taking, you know, known facts about the legends. You know, the, the Bortu, who transforms from a dolphin into a man and goes to parties and seduces local ladies um, and then disappears conveniently. Uh, or, yeah, or the, you know, or Yara, who lures men to their deaths in, in the sea. And and that's that's all the clues they're working with. So I think it's a great, especially the stories, yeah, I reckon are a great model in that way of just looking at, you could do it with, you know, legends from your own village. Think about what, you know, what the stories are there. And, and that's, that's how, it, how it all works. Um, and particularly, I think the elephant and Macaw banner is slightly more upfront about <laughs> which magical creature is which, mm. which uh, makes things a little easier. Although one, one caveat I would put if um, people are going to go and read the stories or the, the setting stuff and then try and find out more about it online is that one thing Chris does quite deliberately in the English is um, all the common names that you would kind of Google Curupira under, for example, those are Portuguese words. Mm -hmm. They're derived from indigenous or um, African words, like, you know, um, but they are Portuguese. And so to kind of de-Portuguese it, to make it feel more like um, the how to put it, the experience of encountering uh, words that have been adapted into your language. He kind of changes the etymology a bit. So uh, Kurupira, rather than which comes from Kurupier, becomes Kurupa in the English one and so on. So if you're kind of trying to Google these things, that can be a bit of a challenge. But, you know, um, hit the list of Brazilian mythological figures page on Wikipedia and you'll make some headway. Awesome. Oh, that's great. So, is, and that's, um, is that, uh, that's for, you're actually publishing that, the English language version, oh, is that correct? 
Yeah, so um, in physical print, you can get the the role playing game core book um, from <clears throat> from IPR Indie Press Revolution, and also the adventure The Curse of Ipauna. And then uh, there are a few other books. We've got the what have we got? Uh, another adventure, Legend of the Golden Condor. There's a source book about uh, Rio de Janeiro and its surroundings in the 1500s. Uh, they're just PDF only at the moment because I can't afford to print them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, they're available from. If you go to PorcupineGames.com, I've got a web page with them all on, and you can have a have a browse. Oh, and the player's guide is is pay what you want. So uh, awesome. Yeah, we will we'll, we'll stick that on the show notes so that everyone can find them easily. So there's there's one last bit of um, bit of uh, urban fantasy we want to talk about, which is Hilda that you recommended to me. You want to talk yeah. about that? Oh, I do. I love Hilda so much. It's great. Uh, so Hilda is well, it's a, an animated series on Netflix that you can watch. It's also a series of graphic novels, which is how um, I found out about it. We borrowed one of them from our local library, and my son went. Look, it says Netflix on it. And I looked at the cover and I was like, oh, yeah, so it does. And so I made a, the point of, of finding it. And it's just the most wonderfully warm-hearted, well-made um, urban fantasy for kids of, I would say, 5 to 12. But as with all good children's TV, it's got lots for adults to enjoy, too. Yep. With all these, you know, the exasperated mum character, who I think we can all identify with. And, and it, much like Invisible City... The, the key setting here is this town called Trollberg. So Hilda sort of lives in a cot, sort of somewhere in Scandinavia. Yep. The original title of the book was Hilda Folk, which is a play on Huldu Folk, the hidden people of Iceland. And lots of the characters have um, Nordic names, um, including like, uh, wait, what is it? That is Tontu is the, hang on, no, Anissa is the household spirit that they meet, which is Swedish, I think. But their name... They're all called Tontu as their personal name, which is the Finnish word for the same creature. Anyway, so yeah, it's all got these Nordic folklore things in it. But crucially, Trollberg is built on where the trolls used to live. Yes. And there's a whole thing about how everyone's afraid the trolls might come back. And that's why there's uh, walls around it and so on. And what else? And much like actually the thing of being initiated into the supernatural world so you can see things. The reason that Hilda and her mum have to move to Trollberg in the first place is because they discover they've been kind of living in but not able to see this elf city that's all around their house in the countryside. And they've been kind of stomping on people's houses by mistake. And it's only when Hilda uh, signs a contract to, I forget what, to keep the secret, that she's allowed to see all the elves. Um, and, can, and can now physically interact yeah. with them, whereas yeah. anyone who hasn't signed the contract, their hand would go straight through a house. But as soon as, as soon as she can do that, she can pick up a house and shake it, not realizing yeah. there's an elf inside it, which is yeah. uh, that that's and, spectacular. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and of course this has loads of well, you know, liminal spaces. There's things like little, this all the unused space in your house becomes an interdimensional area you can go to yeah there's so much going on in it yeah it's really good stuff wow that's hilda on netflix or now the the title i've got is hilda the troll now is is that but that might be a specific graphic novel by luke pearson is that the right the 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 artist oh i I think yeah i think that's one of the one of the not one of the graphic novels yeah 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 
Well, I'm going to. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure that I put links to those because I've I've only watched a couple of episodes of Hilda, but we've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's between that and uh, the new She-Ra, uh, Netflix. Oh, Net, yeah. Netflix yeah. is uh, is certainly delivering. So. Yeah, I mean um, the Hilda one, especially. There's an episode where um, she has a kind of classic Buffy the Vampire Slayer type plot where her best friend has fallen in with these older teenage girls who turn out to be emotion vampires and stuff. Oh man, it's it's dynamite stuff uh-huh. and so metaphorical. <laughs> oh, that's a that is a good recommendation. Thank you. Right, well, Tom, um, I think we're coming towards the end, but if other folks want to uh, find you. Um, out in the out in the sort of social media area, do you want to talk a bit about what else you, what other projects you're doing aside from translating Brazilian role playing games? Oh, I mean that takes up a lot of my time. Um, but uh, what else am I doing? Oh yeah, I have a, a sort of ongoing project on Patreon called uh, Revolution Comes to the Kingdom, which is about kind of a brush fire wars in the twentieth century, but also magical realism maybe. I don't know. Go and if you go and look at uh, Patreon.com/slash/PorcupinePublishing, you might see if you see if you like it. Um, I have a few bits and bobs on itch.io. I think if you look Porcupine Publishing there, you'll find it. And uh, or you could just hassle me on Twitter at PorcupineRPG. I think that would that would do. And also, you're on a couple of podcasts, right? Which is the the more famous of those is uh, obviously Mean by Scene. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and then you, you've got a uh, a slightly less well-known one, which is Fear of the Black Dragon, which I'm certain that anyone who's listened to this will will be well aware of it. Mate, well, yeah, so Fear of the Black Dragon is about uh, is about role role-playing game uh, adventures, but yeah, as as you've mentioned, Mean by Scene, the soon to be much more famous one, I'm sure, is where um, a friend and I, a former work colleague and I, uh, go through in detail examining the 2004 is it yeah Lindsay Lohan movie Mean Girls yeah it's, I, I recently I was having this uh, debate with my partner about um, whether you rank where you rank Mean Girls in the hierarchy of Clueless and Bring It On and certainly Bring It On is, mm. is the highest for her uh, which I really oh, well no I, I've, I've got a lot lot I enjoyed about bringing it on um, but uh, yeah I did like it but mm. I, possibly Mean Girls is the better movie but uh, but bringing it on has spirit fingers so. like I said bring it on has some tremendous energy and of course it also has the famous is it in Get Shorty where The Rock performs a, a dialogue scene playing both parts from Bring It On <laughs> as his audition <laughs> I now, I don't know... Well, I'm going to look for that now. Excellent. <laughs> oh, it might be you got served. You see, ah, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, one of them. <laughs> well, um, the internet will tell all. I've got to, to find that out now. That's great. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. That, that was a really great discussion and uh, really appreciate your time. Pleasure to, to talk to you again. Thank you so much. And that was the show. Thanks again to Tom for appearing. And the music, as always, is by Chris Brisky. Find out more at chrisbrisky.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.